Hello and welcome to On The Mend. I'm Matt Willis and in this series I'm going to be taking a look into the world of mental health, addiction and recovery and how people get through hard times. My guest today is the journalist, broadcaster and podcaster Raphael Rowe. Raphael was arrested for a crime he didn't commit in 1988 and he spent nearly 12 years in prison. On the 17th of July 2000, he and his co-defendants were acquitted and released. During his time in jail, he studied journalism and in 2001, he joined the BBC as a reporter for Radio 4. He now regularly appears on The One Show, hosts the world's toughest prisons on Netflix, which I advise you to watch, and he has his own podcast called Second Chance. In this episode, we talk about his time in prison, taking drugs in jail, what got him through some of his darkest moments and his journey to recovery since being acquitted. It's a really honest, eye-opening but hopeful chat. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Raphael. How are you? I'm very well, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Man, thanks for coming, Matt. I really, really appreciate it. So how are you feeling today? I'm tired, actually, yeah. but tired in a good way because I've just been away on a holiday with the right. family and didn't do any work whatsoever. So I'm kind of recharged. Yeah. You know, when you get recharged and you're sort of 100% and then you come back and you've got to think about work, you're drained almost instantly. So yeah. in a good mood, but a little bit tired. I find that. I find that when I kind of take my foot off the gas, like especially on holiday, I've just been on holiday as well, and, um, and I come back and I feel like I've left so many things by the wayside that sometimes I can become so overwhelmed by what happens next. And actually, it's no different than any other day before I went on holiday, but I'm just like, kind of like finding ways to deal with it differently. It's like catching up, isn't it? That's what I find. I kind of leave it all behind, relax on holiday, and I have a very strong policy that when I'm away, I don't engage with work. You know, 99.9% of my time is having a holiday because that's what it's about. Um, and I'm not complaining, you know, very yeah. fortunate to be going on holiday. There's lots of people who don't go on holiday and I recognise yeah. that. I can, I do, I relax, now I'm back and I'm working again. I want, I want to talk a little bit about growing up. Mm. What was the environment like for you? Because obviously you've just been on holiday with your kids. Was that a possibility when you were growing up? I didn't go away. My first holiday was when I was 32 years old. So my existence was South East London. I grew up in an inner city council estate in South East London. Everybody around me were from a low income family. Mm. Going on holiday didn't exist. You know, if you were lucky to go from, I grew up in Camberwell in South East London. If you were lucky to go to North London, you were on a day trip, you know, and that sometimes happened if you went with with the school on a coach, and I hated the smell of a coach. Yeah. You know, those old school coaches, hated that smell. But that was it, you know, so I didn't leave South East London, apart from a couple of trips, couldn't afford it, didn't have the money to do it, and nobody around me could either. Because I think those kind of early years of development really kind of implement something within you and kind of form who you are, you know, and it takes a certain individual to be to be different than the environment they grow up in, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, you know, as I say, it was kind of, everybody was low income, working class, mm. but there was, and I don't want it to sound um, sort of romantic in that everybody was a part of that community, but that was the reality. You know, we yeah. lived on an inner city council estate that was cocooned, you know, it was like a, a cul-de-sac, one way in, one way out. Yeah, it was a huge estate. And very few people did anything but 
I'd say, integrate within themselves. It was diverse. I think that's one of the beauties about many inner city council estates, low-income families come from diverse backgrounds because we all... And and that was one of the most beautiful things about the community that I grew up in, Mm. is that it didn't matter whether you were Asian, whether you were African, black, white, from Eastern Europe. It didn't matter because we didn't recognise the difference in each other because we were all, I say, struggling in the same way. When I say... We, I mean our parents. Our parents were trying to make ends meet and provide for us as kids. But often that wasn't possible, you know. And so us kids, and I was one of those kids, would often go off and um, do things that was criminal. Shoplifting, Mm. nicking, bars of chocolate, because our parents couldn't afford to give us bars of chocolate. And that's the kind of environment I grew up in in the late 70s, early 80s, where advertisement was a big thing on television. So we wanted what we couldn't afford to have and so I got caught up in a world that became criminal. I mean, so so that's where that's where crime kind of started with shoplifting. I, I had a very similar story. I was, I was from a very low income family, no income family most of the time, and shoplifting was a was a daily practice for me. And I, I remember you talking about in the book that nicked curly whirlies and things, but you didn't need them because you had a drawer full of chocolate. But there was something about doing that, and that was very similar to me. Like I mean, I would almost test myself. Like I remember one Christmas I went to Woolworths and they had these metre sticks of Toblerone and I stuck one down my baggy jeans leg and kind of walked out like a pirate <laughs> to kind of um, to see if I could get away with it, you know, and like those kind of things. What was it that was driving that? Do you think, do you think it was the, the thrill of it? or do you think- I, I, It wasn't the thrill and I don't have an answer. I, I mm. can see it now. I can see myself in my school uniform on my way home from school, you know, walking down the street, just walking past the shop and just going in there and just nicking something. Yeah. And it wasn't for the thrill. There was an element that, you know, it was something I couldn't afford to buy. Didn't have any money in my pocket. Yeah. Uh, my parents didn't have the money to give me to buy sweets. Don't get me wrong. They did buy me sweets, but not yeah. at the level that a kid of 10 wanted. Absolutely. And, yeah, and yeah. other kids. It may also have been driven by, you know, what I'd seen at school on that day where kids whose parents could afford to give them things would come to school eating a curly whirly and I didn't and maybe I wanted it so no real answer other than you know that kid skipping along on the way home from school popped into a shop nicked a bar of chocolate because I knew there wouldn't be one at home for me and then it became a habit yeah I really relate to that because I mean for me I remember getting in trouble once really badly for stealing another kid's kicker's shoes because I wanted them so badly you know, I had terrible school shoes and that, like all I wanted was some kickers. So I stole another kid's kickers and I got in so much shit for that. And I didn't need them, but I just wanted what I couldn't have. Do you know what I mean? I, I do because yeah. I did a similar thing and got caught, yeah. you know, and the consequences of that is that people start to dislike you and then you, you get a reputation. And I don't think people recognise that that level of desperation, you know, mm. what made you, what made me, Nick, from a friend, from a yeah. kid, another kid? Yeah. We had no concept of the consequences of that. And I suppose, you know, when you ask about the environment that I grew up in, similar to yours, people don't realise the consequences of their actions mm. out of desperation. You do things out of desperation or, or without consideration, but the consequences can be quite longer lasting, you know, forever. Yeah. It scars you, doesn't it, in some way? Yeah, absolutely. I remember there's um, as a kid we we hung around with for a little while who had been to like a detention centre for, for youths. And I heard you talk about this in the book. And like he had so much more gravitas than any of us 
you know, because he'd been inside, you know. You were first put away when you were 18, is that right? 17, 17, 17 18. Mm. And when you came out, you explained it maybe gave you that kind of level of kind of street cred, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like kids look up to other kids who have survived something. But yeah, there was this level of when you came out of prison, you were... You have an experience, an insight, a knowledge that very few people have in your community, even though it was a community where it was probably peppered by lots of different criminality. Not everybody gets arrested and ends up going to prison. So at the age of 17, I did have a bit of a reputation, having been to a young offenders institution. Brutal, brutal reality going into that institution um, for a very short period, Mm. but it was enough. How long was that? About three months. Yeah. It was a longer sentence, but then I was released because the the sentence was too long and the judge recognised that. And it was a tough experience, but like many kids, you kind of... I hesitate to say, Matt, you wear it as a badge. I didn't yeah. wear it as a badge, but other people saw it as a badge. You know, yeah. They saw you And you use what you can at that age. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to get into what it was like in jail because you were what's called a Category A offender. Mm. You spent most of your time in segregation. Um, for, for how long would you say you were in segregation for when you first went in? I think over the first seven years, it, it would have been, you know, over... That's so, that for the first seven years, even you saying that out loud makes the hairs on my arms stand up. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. first seven years of me being in prison for a crime I didn't commit, right, yeah. is a lot of that time was spent in isolation and segregation. Mm. It could be for three days, a week. It could be for a month. And that would happen every few months. So in total, uh, two or three years in those first seven years where I was most volatile, most angry, fighting my wrongful convictions and being punished as a consequence of standing up for myself, but also not conforming to the regime that required me to do things on a daily basis um, as a convicted individual would. You know, for example, um, prison officers would come to my door and demand that I go to work because you're required to work in prisons if there is jobs available. And I refused. I refused to do anything that the prison required of me that would validate the fact that I was a convicted prisoner guilty of a crime. And so as a consequence, prison officer would come into my cell, grab both my arms, both my legs, and drag me down to segregation. I'd go in front of a governor and he'd give me three days for discipline, not going to work. And that would happen regularly, regularly, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then, you know, it got more serious than that on many occasions. But it's because I wouldn't conform to the regime. The biggest thing I got from from your book was was the hope and the drive and determination you had to prove your innocence, which Mm. is which is so admirable because a lot of people would have just made their life easier by just conforming and just getting on with their time, you know, still having hope to get justice served. But it would have made life easier. But I think for you, that would have lost a part of your spirit that you weren't willing to give up. It would have tormented me in in a way that was just not who I am. You, Mm. You know, I didn't go into prison and come out the same person by far. I think, you know, my, my experience of, you know, when I first was held on remand in Brixton prison, in a prison within a prison, it turned a 20-year-old man, that's what I was, a 20-year-old, young, happy-go-lucky street kid, loved partying, loved going out with girls, you know, doing a bit of drugs, smoking weed, just partying overnight to a, a, a man on a mission, 20 years old, 18 months in a prison within a prison, 
banged explain, up. Explain what you mean by a prison but within a prison. So in Brixton Prison, where I was held for the first 18 months on remand, waiting to go to trial. So this is unconvicted? Unconvicted. You're 18 months unconvicted. 18 months unconvicted, on remand, waiting to go to trial. Yeah. And I was in Brixton Prison. And in Brixton Prison, they had a prison unit built within the prison that housed some of the country's most dangerous prisoners, as well as foreign prisoners. So Colombian drug cartel bosses, mm. you know, Freddie Foreman, a known gangster, you know, yeah. the Richardson, South East London gangsters, the craze, that it would hold those notorious criminals or criminals who had wealth and the ability to be, you know, broken out of prison or yeah. IRA um, suspects. So I was in a prison that was built within a prison. So, for example... You'd go through one door in the prison. So you go through the, the, the normal population. Mm. It, you, you know, gates are opened. You go in where all the other prisoners are being held. You go through that to the end of the prison, if you like. And then you've got some iron stairs. And then there'd be a big iron door. And that door would open. And when you go inside that door, you'd be in a little box. And once that door shuts, another door opens. And that's when you go into that prison within a prison. And there would be about 20 cells in there. And I was held in one of those cells. So that's what I mean by... And I was held in that cell for 18 months, 23 hours a day, every day, in that remand period. And the only time I was allowed out of that cell was for an hour, every day, weather permitting, to go into a caged exercise. So I didn't leave the block. Mm. I'd still be inside the block, go down some mine stairs, and be allowed out into an open cage space on my own. Um, still on your own? Still on my own. Yeah. For that time, I mean that is. Um, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the the feeling of being locked in 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 prison is is terrifying enough. But then to feel like you're in a in a separate prison within that prison, it just it must have felt so so closed in. And I mean, and also being on your own. What did you do during that time? I mean, I can't imagine spending one day with nothing to take my mind off my own mind. You know, um, what did you what did you find that was was helpful during that time? If you if you think about trying to push the heaviest weight on yeah. your on your being, and you had to find the strength, you know, to 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 lift it up. So everything was crushing me, mm. mentally, physically, emotionally, and then externally, having to worry about what my mum was going through, yeah. my family and relatives. I had to find the strength. I really did have to dig deep to find the strength to get through that period. So what I found was exercise, mm. simple push-ups, simple sit-ups every minute of the day to give me the strength to get through that ordeal. Mm. And alongside that was my demand of the information that had led to me being in that predicament. So by that, I mean, I would ask my solicitors, I would ask the barristers to provide me with every document that was being prepared against me for the murder and series of robberies that I was in prison for, mm. so that I could read every line, every piece of information I could get my hands on. Yeah. I built the strength to read the documents to start that fight against yeah. my wrongful convictions. I was in a lawsuit a long time ago and I read some of those documents. They're hard to read, you know, and I'm an uneducated man and, like, the thought of reading them, I, I just couldn't be bothered, you know, because it just didn't 
compute with me. I had no choice. Yeah. I was yeah. in a confined six by nine space. Yeah. No toilet. You know, I, when I was in prison, there was no toilets. You know, I slopped out every day. Every day my cell would be opened for five minutes. Yeah. I'd pick up my chamber pot, this plastic transparent chamber pot, with my poo and piss in it, and I'd walk down to the slop-out area where other guys had emptied theirs earlier that day, where guys had washed their face, where guys had brushed their teeth, where guys were having poos if they were allowed to use the toilet every day. But in that cell... Those documents brought me comfort yeah. because I could see on paper the case that was being built against me that wasn't true. And that yeah. gave me the beginning of my hope because I knew that was wrong. I knew that was a lie. So it was something I could start challenging. And yeah. that's what I did. I mean, and listening to your book, I mean, hearing the, the case that was against you, it must have brought so much hope because it was so unfathomable that this was being put on you. So when you first went after those 18 months on remand and you first went and you got convicted, when you walked into the, the court, how were you feeling? I didn't think I'd be convicted. Yeah. But then I'd been on remand for so long. I'd been charged with these crimes in the face of evidence that was overwhelming mm. that we couldn't have been convicted. Um, yeah. We couldn't have been guilty. You know, Just the descriptions of the perpetrators from the victim should have been enough for the police to be looking in a completely different direction. So the, just to go on that, um, they were saying it was two white men and a black man. Yeah. And they had arrested three black men. Yeah. I mean, that alone... You know, and the fact that the victims had said that they could see blonde hair and blue eyes through the balaclava, and yet three black men were arrested for this. Stood in the dock. Stood in the dock, and then and then charged. And charged. I mean, that is unbelievable. I, I had dreadlocks at the time, as did my co-defendant. Yeah. The other guy was much darker than the both of us. Brown eyes, no fair hair. So what was it that went wrong at my trial? What yeah. was it that these jury members didn't, listen to so you've got victims standing up in the court mat telling the jury telling the court that the people responsible for the crimes committed against them were of that description two white one black yeah. fair hair blue eyes what was it that the jury didn't get and other people i tell you what it was it was the skill of a prosecutor it was the desperation of a criminal justice system who wanted to tell the general public that they got the right people locked up. Forget the evidence. Just believe that we are bringing you a justice that the newspapers demanded at the time. You know, the headlines at the time yeah. were, were monsters. Bring back hanging. Yeah. You know, that's what we were up against. I mean, it was a huge story, you know, so I suppose... Um, yeah, they were just trying to bring, I don't know, like, what was it, comfort to the public? Like, I mean, it just seems bizarre. Even today, I, I can't get my head around. When I think back to that time, no matter how racist a system can be, mm. no matter how skilled a prosecutor can be at presenting a case in the face of evidence that undermines that case, even today, I can't get my head around how... 12 ordinary members of the public can be told by a victim that the perpetrator looked nothing like the people that were in the dock, yet they found it within themselves to convict us. Yeah. To say, okay, we're going to send three black men to prison, two of them who have dreadlocks and could never have matched yeah. the descriptions for the rest of their life in prison for crimes. And we're not talking about, about one victim at one scene who, who may have been under stress and distress and made a mistake. We're talking about three separate crimes. And at each crime... 
the victims have given a similar description. Headlines, two white, one black, the police are hunting, you know, this M25 gang. Yet the three black men who stood in the dock, the three black men that were charged, ended up going to prison, destined to spend the rest of our lives in prison in the face of that kind of evidence. I, I, even today, I can't understand how that could have happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't either. I mean, it just seems like, I mean, the power of influence over people that that prosecutor must have had and because when i think about it they must have gone over gone gone away out of that courtroom and chatted amongst themselves you know to come to a verdict i mean how anyone in that room would have gone wait a sec what the fuck are you doing you know like it just seems unfathomable for me to to understand and, that. and it's a simple thing isn't it yeah. it's like no the victim's got it wrong yeah we've got it right Exactly, and, yeah. and that's what, what, what we were up against. The victims have got it wrong. All the evidence that was presented, the evidence, we're talking about the evidence and the facts that was being presented was being ignored. Mm. And it was the case that the prosecution were mounting against these three young men that mattered more than, than justice, it, justice itself. Mm. And it took me 12 long years. So when we talk about, you know, how, how do you cope in that situation when you then find yourself in a prison within a prison, destined to be there for the rest of your life as a young man. When, when we talk about how do you find the hope to survive that, the anger that was so embedded in me, mm. the bitterness that they could get away with this is what gave me the strength and the hope. Yeah. You, you know, and you, I can see your reaction. I'm sure people listening to this will think, how could that be possible? That is enough to give you a yeah. strength you didn't know existed within yourself, whatever your background, that, level of injustice does give you an inner strength that helps you fight yeah did me i mean you must have learned so much about i mean you talk about how much of, about law and about the criminal system you learned during that time what was it like kind of trying to kind of come to grips with those those papers in front of you that were trying to convict you of something which was obviously not you and you knew you know it's not you what was that kind of learning period like? It was educational. I was developing new skills. Yeah. I was expanding my vocabulary. I was sitting down stupidly in the beginning with my barristers, you know, these learned barristers of years of experience trying to talk their language, mm. you know, trying to articulate my defence to these barristers that were going to represent me in their language. Mm. And at the time, I felt very proud of myself, but they must have been laughing at me inside because I was undereducated but didn't have that level of you know i was using words i didn't even fucking understand yeah, yeah. you know eventually i did because yeah. in all that time i did self-study the law by reading the law books by reading these documents by preparing these kind of spreadsheets i used to stick pieces of paper together with toothpaste because you didn't have sellotape or blue tack or whatever it is you would use so i used to get the toothpaste that i used to use to brush my teeth wet it run it down the line of paper and stick pieces of paper together until i had this spreadsheet of inconsistency so every time i read a lie i would then reference it back to another document to another document to another document thousands and thousands of documents so i was educating myself about the case against me and no one no one was doing what I was doing. So my barristers were preparing my defence. My family were trying to give me the strength every day. Yeah. But nobody understood my case like I did. Yeah. And um, by the time I went to trial and way beyond after I'd been convicted. So that period was an educational skills development period for, for me. And it expanded who I was as a person and really helped me discover 
I was far more intelligent than anybody had ever led me to believe in my life up until that point. And yeah. unfortunately, I was in the horrible situation to discover that, but I did discover it in that space. So you talked a lot about exercise whilst you're in jail, and you talked about yoga, you know, which I found fascinating. How did you learn yoga? Someone gave me a book called The, the Joy of Sex, yeah. I think it was. And it had, I didn't know anything about yoga at the time, but the joy of sex had all these positions in it. And I used to follow those positions. So, so these were sexual positions yeah. in this book called Joy of Sex. I don't was know this how, in jail? This was in jail. Yeah. So this was in bricks in, in that prison within a prison. Yeah. They had a book in jail called The Joy of Sex. Joy of Sex, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the yeah. irony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it is a well-renowned book mm. in terms of you know couples developing their sexuality and, mm. and whatever. But I used the book. It was also... Uh, to be honest, the level of pornography. Absolutely, you take what you get. You, you take yeah, yeah. what you get, and yeah, in yeah. prison, that's what it was. And that's where it started for me. I started to sort of bend myself into these positions. And then I started to get one pieces, like pieces of paper with yoga positions on it. Mm. Um, started to discover yoga, and I did it in myself. Yeah. I, I, I did it every day in myself, just the stretching side of things, just yeah. the movement into positions. Meditation didn't work for me. My mind bounced off of the walls every day because of the documentation I was reading. Yeah. And the I couldn't, my mind wouldn't rest. I couldn't find that peace. Well, I suppose it's like a physical meditation, isn't it? It's about it, when you're focusing so much on the position, you're able to focus on something else rather than the thoughts that are within your head. Yeah, it was all about the, the if strength of body gave me strength of mind. My, yeah. my, 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 you know, my being was broken by my experience. So I, the, the only thing I had control of was my my own being my own physical being and my own mind mm. every decision was being made for me every minute of every day even when I could piss and shit because I didn't have a toilet in my cell I had to wait for somebody to open the cell to let me out and if it was during a period where I couldn't knock on the door and say look I need to have a poo can I be let out I'd have to do it in that chamber pot and then wait for the morning to empty that if I didn't throw it out of the window. Um, so every decision was being made for me. Every minute of every day, I couldn't do anything for myself. I mm. couldn't choose what I wanted to eat. I couldn't choose how much I wanted to eat. I couldn't choose when I could walk more than nine steps in, in my cell. So the only thing I had control of was my own mind and my own body. And I took control of it by doing the yoga, doing the physical exercise, which gave me the strength of mind to do what I needed to do to fight my wrongful conviction. You know, you're sitting in a room, just imagine 23 hours a day, especially in the remand period. When I got convicted and went to the other prisons, it was a little bit different because they had a wider regime. You know, you're convicted yeah. now, so there are other opportunities. I never took any of those opportunities, but you weren't banged up as much as I was in the early period. Still did the physical exercise. But, you know, sitting in that space all that time, there's very little you can do. And yeah. so you just constantly sit there and think, I'll do 10 press-ups just because it's something to do. Yeah. And then you sit and you say, I used to rearrange myself in a ridiculous way, you know. Yeah. People talk about OCD, and we talked about that yeah. a moment ago. I've moved my toothpaste from one part of the room to another part of the room just to give myself something to do. Yeah. And not even realising I was doing it all the time. Do you ever get used to all of your rights as a human being taken away do you ever get used to that regime i think it's 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 almost instant really it's instant because when you're banged behind that door for the very first time and there's no handle on the inside of that door mm. th there is a i would argue a mind shift that happens 
and will happen to anybody in that scenario. Mm. Some people deal with it differently. You might bang your head against the wall for a few days, but then you have to come to terms with it, and you do, and you adapt. And then you apply that to the fact that you can't decide when you go and speak to your loved ones or anything. So your mind starts to develop shapes and patterns that condition you to behave in the way that prisons are set up for people to behave in certain ways. Mm. You know, this is just the physical structure of a prison, the opening and closing of cell doors, the ability to move around an exercise yard, not being in a car, moving any faster than your feet can take you, you know, which yeah. is an experience that people wouldn't even kind of think about. When you're in prison, you don't go any fast, any faster than your feet can take you, whether it's yeah. walking or running. So if you are unable or incapable of running, then for years you might only walk around an exercise yard. Then you get out of prison, you get in a car, or you get on a bike, and your body is moving a lot quicker mm. than you have done for years. All that is part of the conditioning, and your mind map has to relearn, like we do with anything. That's prison for you. Yeah, man. One thing that really kind of hit me was when you talked about being sent to F-Wing, which is called Fraggle Rock. So was that known? That was a known name within the prison? Yeah, yeah. It was the, the, the sort of nickname of this wing, yeah. Fraggle Rock. So, so why, why were you sent to Fraggle Rock? There became, I suppose, this is in the early remand period. Yeah. So this was in Brixton Prison. Fraggle Rock, just to put it into context, was a place um, within Brixton Prison. It was a wing. It was the hospital wing. Yeah. But most of the people that were in there were in there because they had drug addictions. Mm. They were in there because they had mental health issues. Or they were in there on suicide watch. Yeah. And I was sent there because I was in such a dark and deep, dark place I think the authorities thought that I was suicidal. And so they sent me to this wing for observation by medical staff and potentially to to give me medication to try and get me out of this dark place that I was in. Yeah. So I was sent to that wing and it was crazy. It yeah. was it was a really you Had you ever been in any kind of um uh, been around any any people like that before in your life? I'd been around people who took drugs, yeah, took yeah. a few drugs myself. Yeah. But I'd never been in a situation where the drugs had taken control. Yeah. And not just illegal drugs, I'm talking about medication, where I was seeing guys who were in such a state because of the medication they were being given by the prison yeah. itself, um, just to help them cope with the environment they were in. These were not people that were drug addicts. These were not people who had mental health issues. Young men who were in prison, who couldn't cope with the environment, who were now being medicated, you know, given sleepers of, of various different kinds, you, you know, liquid yeah. cosh, we called it. They take these drugs, but they took it way more than they needed it, and it affected their, their ability to function normally, which is why we called it Fraggle Rock. Lots yeah. of people banging on doors, lots of people with mental health issues who shouldn't have been there. They should have been in a proper hospital getting proper treatment. Mm. So, and there was, um, there was people with, with drug addictions in, in, that, in that block. I remember being in rehab and, and, and sitting with a few guys that had just come from jail that were in there. And they were talking to me about drugs in jail. I was blown away at the fact that you could get drugs in jail. Because I was like, you're in jail, how are you getting drugs? But they said it was easier for them to score drugs in jail than it was outside. What, what was your kind of experience with that? Did you see that going on? 
Yes, I did. I mean, there are different types of prisons, right? Mm. As you mentioned at the beginning, I was an ACAT, so I was in maximum security type prisons. So yeah. getting drugs into those establishments are a lot harder yeah. than it is getting drugs into local prisons where, you know, there is a conveyor belt of prisoners coming in and out, coming in and out all right. the time, going to courts, coming back from courts where drugs can be passed to them from the outside to bring into the inside. Yeah. And then there's obviously corruption. Prison officers mm. in every establishment will be corrupted by money or some other way to bring drugs into prison. I think for me, when I was on that Fraggle Rock, so this is in 88, 2000, um, 1988 up until about n 1990 when I was on that remand period and the ecstasy scene had just come, you know, ease were about, the, you know, drug had changed slightly. So a lot of the guys I was seeing were E-heads is what we would call yeah. them. Um, so that was the drug then. A few years later when I'm in the prison, it was just weed. You know, right. you'd have a little bit of crack You'd have a look, because that was another new drug in, in the early 90s. A little bit of crack, always heroin, always a little bit of cocaine, but not enough in the prison system. And then all of a sudden, in the early 1990s, the prison service introduced mandatory drug tests, right. which meant that a lot of guys who were good guys, I say, you know, criminals, but good guys yeah. in the sense they had morals and values and, you know, they were doing their time happily, um, who were just puffed, you know, smoking a bit of weed, screws didn't mind that, mm. knew that these mandatory drug tests could affect their sentence. They could have time added on, they could be punished, lose privileges that they were having, turned to heroin. I saw a lot of good guys who had never touched heroin, yeah. started to take heroin in substitution to marijuana, weed, puffing, um, because it didn't stay in your body as right. long as weed. So they thought a little bit of heroin would get them through a couple of days, and if they did get, you know, snatched for a drug test, it wouldn't be in their system anymore. Right. Just turned a lot of good guys. You know, so years later, I'd be in a different prison. I see a guy come along who was a sound, level-headed, just doing his time, who had become a raving heroin addict. And I saw yeah. many of that happen in prison. I personally stopped puffing. You, you know, I wasn't going to give them, and I didn't turn to heroin, never touched heroin in my life. Yeah. Took other drugs, but never touched heroin. But that was a big shift you know they didn't have things like spice like they do now yeah. in prison which is a huge problem i'm told in prisons today right um so yeah there were drugs and there was always you know christmas new year's you'd see you know a little bit of ecstasy going around i took my first ecstasy tablet in prison you know right. i was in i'll give you the fact i was in i think it was maidstone prison banged opposite reggie cray banged opposite some other notorious gangsters it was a kind of close-knit prison and a couple of guys who were able to get drugs into the prison, you know, um, mm. had some ecstasy tablets. And I remember being given an ecstasy tablet and being told that I'd have a good night. And just as we all got banged up, sort of seven o'clock in the morning, I'm sort of behind this door on my own, high on this E, yeah. not knowing what it was. But yeah. I did. I had a good night. I think I wanked all night long. Yeah, it kind yeah. of kept me going. Yeah. Um, first and last time I took it, it's just not the kind of drug you took in prison, but that's what people were doing. And um, a lot of the guys that were in there were in there because of drugs. In what, what in what capacity? What um, um, from being banged up for for being users or for being banged up for both sellers? Yeah. Both people who committed crimes on drugs, mm. people who were involved in the trafficking of drugs, yeah, people who were dealers in prison, and I saw quantities of drugs in prison that could only have got there from prison staff. Yeah, you know they were smuggled in by staff, paid for by people who could afford to pay it, mm. um, and then distributed amongst prison. Most of it was weed, but there was a lot of heroin. Yeah. As well. I've known a lot of people that have been banged up for, for having drugs on them. There's no level of kind of 
care for that. It's just kind of like they're just like a drug addict, so they're put in jail. When you were in F-Wing, did you see people detoxing at all or anything like that, or was it just... People just bang behind their doors yeah. and being medicated. You, right. you know, if you were a heroin addict, you were just given a substitute right. until it was your time to go to court or to do something. There was no, from what I saw, mm. and I was only there for a few months until they realised that I didn't need that kind of supervision. I mean, yeah. I was being supervised 24 hours a day, every day in the cell that I was in anyway. This was more suicide watch, although I wasn't suicidal. But it was just about medicating drug addicts, you know. The difference, Matt, is that the prisons that I was in were long-term, so anybody who'd come into prison as a drug addict, who had committed a crime as a drug addict, had long come off of those drugs by yeah. the time they got to the establishments that I was in, or they were destined to spend such a long time in prison. Drugs served no purpose to them, or what I would argue is there were two or three guys who, and I, I can visualise this guy now, he was a guitarist, right? And he was a heroin addict, but he had such control of his, his addiction. Mm. You know, he used to entertain the wing playing his guitar. He was a lifer, yeah. a, a regular heroin addict before he came into prison, heroin addict when he was in prison. But he managed it admirably, mm. you, you know, unlike the new heroin addicts who were running around out of desperation and doing things that were getting themselves in trouble and compromising other people in the prison in terms of yeah. bringing attention to the dealers and things like that. Whereas this particular guy who used to play guitar all the time, I can visualise him now, um, had control of his, his addiction, didn't want to give it up, didn't want help, just managed it himself. Um, and there were lots of guys like that. Going back to, to Hope, one part of your book which really stuck with me was um, that you sent you, you said you learnt to act strong and you learnt to kind of, um, you said fake it till you make it mm. and choosing your identity. Mm. So you got to take that into your own hands. Um, can you explain a little bit about that? Because I think that's so important because I think so many times we get told who we are, you know, and especially if, we're, if we've got any kind of mental health problem or we've kind of gone through something, we can be told what we are. Mm. Like in, in recovery, we're told we're an addict and that's what you are, you know, or you're told you've got, you're depressed or you've got this and that can become your identity. Um, but you chose to, you chose to act strong and you chose to form your own identity. You know, how did that come about? I suppose it was through the things that I witnessed. Mm. You, you know, I will... I was witnessing people pretending that they were not who they were. Hmm. I was in a, an environment that could be highly dangerous. You, yeah. you know, you didn't know when violence would come at you just for the way you looked at another prisoner because everything is, is heightened to a level where your senses and, and your behaviour um, can trigger reactions from others for no reason. Yeah. And so it was important for me to to stay true to who I was. So I would never accept being called a guilty murderer because mm. I wasn't a guilty murderer. And I yeah. wouldn't accept the identity of being a convicted murderer like a lot of the guys around me did and mm. had to because they were mm. people who had killed, committed yeah. violent offences. So it was important that I found who I truly was through my actions. So everything I did, I did it as me and not somebody else. I suppose there were times where I had to pretend 
that I wasn't scared when I was scared. Yeah. There were times where I had to pretend that I was stronger than the the small framed individual I was in the face of a big framed individual who could do me serious damage mm. and physically. So I just kind of developed that strength of character. And I suppose it, it kind of, it was born out of that kind of inner strength that I built at the very beginning to survive that weight I talked about, mm. you know, so I built the physical strength to lift that weight, both physically and mentally. And now I had to, to use it in the environment that I was in on a, a daily basis. And it stuck with me. It stuck with me because it gave me determination. It gave me courage. It gave me a sense of identity. Mm. It gave me the personality, the confidence that I needed to not only survive that environment, fight my wrongful conviction, communicate with the outside world, which led me to do a journalism course, not because I wanted to become a journalist, but because I wanted to manipulate journalists to write stories about my wrongful conviction. Yeah. Because it was journalists who wrote stories about me being a monster and a murderer. So I knew how influential they could be. So I started to to find the strength of character to manipulate those in the only way I, I knew, you, you know, and it was all for a purpose, my freedom, to yeah. win back my freedom. I mean, you're talking about how Anne Whitcomb came to the, came to the prison and you, and you cornered her, yeah, <laughs> and which I found amazing, you know, because a lot of people, you know, even if you're whoever you are, that is kind of like, I mean, that is a big, bold move, you know, and to, to get her and to go, look, I need to talk to you about my case and then going off with her and talking to her about it. Let's, let's picture the scene. You're in jail and you know she's coming to... And what was she at the time? She was the Minister of Justice. Minister of Justice. Prisons. Minister of Justice or Prisons at the time. Right. So, so big she, cheese. Yeah, so she's coming to the jail, right? So you know that. And you corner her <laughs> in a non-threatening way to talk about... To say, I need to talk to you about my case. And she, she did, right? She did, yeah. yeah. Testimony to her. I think... You're right. I was in Maidstone Prison at the time. Yeah. That was her constituency. Mm. So she was making a visit to the prison as part of her constituency. I was Which one is of probably her... just a routine visit. She's just turning up. A bit, a bit, bit of both. Yeah. No, yeah. it was a, it was a bit of both. And I was aware that she was coming, but I didn't realise the position that she was in right. in terms of her influence. Right. Um, now, often prison guards, because of the, the but by this time, my my reputation had, had preceded me in the sense that prison guards were always on their guard because I could be quite volatile, I was right. aggressive. In in, in How my how far approach. is this into your time in prison? Probably five, six, seven years. Right seven years, something like that. So when she came into the prison, Anne Whittacombe, I remember on the landing, sort of as you come into the cell block and she was down there and I'm at the top and I'm making my way down the stairs and I know the guards, the prison officers, the screws are kind of thinking, fuck, Raphael's coming, you know, this little yeah. militant individual. And there I was, I made my B-way to her and just said, I want you to talk to her. She was taken aback, but testimony to her when I said I was a wrongly convicted prisoner and I wanted to discuss my case with her, we did. We went into her room. She gave me a little bit of her time. I explained to her that, you know, key to my wrongful conviction was the non-disclosure of evidence mm. and people were not disclosing the evidence. She went away as my MP. Mm. 
um, and took interest, wrote letters on my behalf, did things on my behalf. Didn't lead to anything, in fairness. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I cornered her. But it did lead to other MPs becoming involved in taking an interest in my argument that I'd been wrongly convicted. And I think eventually they were quite instrumental um, in influencing other MPs, especially those that were now in a position to review my case mm. at the time. It just seems like these steps, you know, these things that kind of like from... Because, you know, 18 months in, you get convicted. It could have just been... No one knows what's going to happen then. It could have just been game over, you know. But there were steps that you took and things that you did on a daily basis that just implemented you into getting justice eventually. When did you when did you finally get justice? In 2000. In so 2000. I'd been in prison for 12 years. 1988 is yeah. when I was arrested, locked At up. At 20 years old? At 20. And so you were 32 years 32 old? when I got out. I remember you talking about there was a, there was a moment when you were being transferred and the, the people that were transferring you stopped at McDonald's. I, I found that part of the book so joyful because the feeling that they opened the back of the, if you want to go into it, they opened the back of the, of the prison van and you sat on the steps and had a McDonald's with it, them. And you, you, were in a, you were in a position there where you could have overpowered them and escaped. Easily. You know, and would, was that going through your mind? Yes, of course it was. Yeah. You know, it was, I think, nine years into the sentence. By now, the media had started to write stories about the potential miscarriage of justice. Yeah. There were documentaries being made. BBC Rough Justice had made a programme. ITV had made a programme investigating my case. So there were a lot of questions about the safety of my conviction. So my campaign to bring awareness to the public, to journalists, has worked and yeah. was working. And it was all happening whilst you were inside. All while That's I was inside. amazing. All while I was inside. Yeah. I was doing most of it, but my family and other campaigners who had got involved, you know, people that are interested in this space. So It took nine years, but from the murderous killer that you were when you went in, mm. nine years later, people are campaigning for your innocence. That must have been so amazing to feel. It, it was, it was... It, it was, but at the same time, a lot of those people knew at the time, a lot of the right. journalists who wrote the stories following my conviction were not convinced at yeah. the time, but these are seasoned journalists who just do court cases and report on, and then at some point, and I suppose there is a trend to these things, a lot of high-profile miscarriage of cases had taken place, Birmingham 6, Guildford 4, various other high-profile miscarriage of justice cases had been run through the media, so they were looking for the next one, so I was just one of those that latched on. Yeah. But you talk about that moment, so it was... I was going to an appeal court hearing mm. for something. Can't remember what it was. I think I'd been down to Pentonville Prison, overnighted there. By this time, my, I'd say relationship, but that's not probably the right word, with the prison staff had changed. The dynamics had changed. Up until, you know, the journalists started to declare questions about my wrongful convictions, I was in total conflict with the prison staff constantly. Yeah. Volatile relationship. I didn't like them. They didn't like me. That's because I had this misconstrued conception that they were responsible as part of the authorities. Mm. But when they started slipping newspapers under my door that, you know, had articles about my wrongful conviction and I was being let out of the cell, 
um, to make an extra call to my sister or my lawyer because they now started to have some sympathy mm. with what the journalists were telling them, not just me. Yeah. You know, for years I'd been telling them I was innocent. They didn't care. They kicked the shit out of me. Yeah. Now journalists were saying it. Now TV documentaries were being made. They started to realise this guy might well be innocent. Yeah. And so that culminated in that trip in that prison van from an appeal hearing on my way back where the prison staff naively, you know, I'm a lifer, destined yeah. to spend the rest of my life in prison, had been in maximum security prisons for years, had never stepped foot from the day I went in prison onto, you know, freedom land, you know, our yeah. pavements in all those years. But they stopped at a McDonald's because they were hungry. And they yeah. asked me if I was hungry. I was the only one in the prison van at the time. Yeah. And um, it was all very bizarre, yeah. very bizarre when they opened the door they asked me what I wanted, and I remember a quarter pound of cheese and whatever, milkshake, strawberry milkshake and fries and a little yeah. apple pie, which is what I always had when I was on the outside. Yeah. And they went and they bought it. Now, I was expecting them to sort of come into the van, close the back of the van, lock it, come to the cell that I'm in, open that little door, give it to me, but they didn't. Yeah. They opened my door. The back door was open. I kind of walked out like a scared rabbit sat on the steps at the end of the van and I was physically fit, fast. You know, I'd run marathons around exercise yards. All these years I'd still kept myself physically fit. I could have, as you said, overpowered these guards mm. and ran and ran and ran. Yeah. Um, and it did cross my mind and I did mm. think about it. And then there was a little bit of paranoia in me that thought maybe that's what they want. Maybe yeah. they want me to escape. Maybe they test. want me to run so that they could damage the progress my campaign had made, yeah. highlighting my innocence, is not innocence. See, innocent people don't run. Yeah. You know? So once again, there's that inner strength to kind of go, do you know what? It's so fucking hard, man. I bet it was. I bet it was. I that bet was it my was. first sniff of freedom in all yeah. those years. You know, other than that, all I'd seen is blue skies. Yeah. You know, I couldn't see beyond the walls and the fences that had kept me contained. I could only ever look up into the sky and see grey or blue skies. In all those years, you don't see 500 metres because walls stop your vision. My yeah. vision, just like my ability to move, had been restricted in all those years. Mm. And here I was sitting on the steps of a prison van with the whole world in front of me. Yeah. My eyes, the colours and everything were kind of disorientated. Yeah. But you're right, I had the strength of character to say, no, I'm going to win, I'm going to fight this in the yeah. way that I've always fought it and get back my freedom, my mm. innocence proved. Yeah, and I mean, um, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible end to to that period when you get you get released and you're kind of back in the world, and um, and then obviously everything that happens to you afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, you go through, you work for the BBC, you kind of you become an investigative journalist. You've now got an incredible show on Netflix, you know, um, you've got children of your own, mm. you know, um, you said I think they're um. 17 and 19? 19 and 15. Yeah, 19 and 15. And an older son that was yeah. born before I went to prison. Yes. And um, uh, when when was the time when you talked to your, your kids about your past and what was that like? That was difficult. Probably, yeah. uh, I've said it many times, probably, you know, two of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. But mm. kids are kids and they made it easy for me. My son, yeah. um, I remember telling him because I, I'd worked at the BBC on, mm. you know, Panorama and whatever, and he was too young to kind of understand that. So I wasn't as exposed um, publicly. Yeah. Um, and he was very young, and my daughter was even younger at the time. But there did come a time when I'd started to become more 
known on television, mm. on the BBC, yeah. where I felt it was, and parents knew who I was through the work that I was doing. And so walking my son to school, parents would talk to me and ask questions about all oh, that being about prison. And mm. at that point, my son knew nothing. So there did come a point where I had to sit him down. I remember we were away. He was going to play football. So we came back, just the two of us, really hesitant to tell him. But I sat him down in his bed and I didn't really know how to articulate it to a 10-year-old kid. I think it was mm. 12 at the time, 12-year-old kid at the time. I didn't know how to articulate it. But a lot of cuttings, newspaper cuttings yeah. that had been written in newspapers of my wrongful conviction, the overturning of my conviction, the freedom. So I kind of almost put that in front of him mm. and sort of said to him, you know, Daddy had been to prison and um, for serious offences, crimes I didn't commit. Um, really, really hard to, to share this. He kind of looked yeah. at it paid attention for five, ten minutes maximum and then lost interest. Yeah. Um, and we've never you, really... Because you, his dad. Because you, you your, your dad. Yeah. You know, and um, I suppose that's the beauty of it, right? It's and like... I don't think he comprehended it. Yeah. Kids didn't comprehend it. Yeah. Telling my daughter was a different challenge all, yeah. altogether, you know, apple of my eye, apple of her eye, dad-daughter relationship. And um, I was working for the One Show, BBC One Show mm. at the time, so the exposure was even more. Yeah. Um. And I was always terrified that my kids would find out about my experience, my wrongful conviction mm. and imprisonment from somebody else. Yeah. Um, or from reading something. Or, yeah. you know, at this time they were now being exposed to the internet because they were old enough to have yeah. their own phones or whatever it was. Yeah. And that so goes I'm, against you owning your own narrative. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So one, I, I was doing a piece on the one show about Brixton Prison, the unit that I was in, the prison within the prison that closed down. You know, it was too barbaric mm. and they closed that unit down. And I was doing a piece in that prison for the one show about some rehabilitation project that had now started in that prison. And I knew that my daughter's friends, parents would see the one show because it had recently, you know, become a popular program. Yeah. And I knew I had to tell my daughter and I left it to the last minute, probably 15 minutes before that. That sequence went out on the one show and I quickly took my daughter into the room and said, Daddy needs to talk to you. I think she was 10 at the time and, you know, a little bright eyes looking up at me, terrified that I'm about to tell her something scary. And I said to her that I'd been to prison and that I'd been in prison and that some of her friends were going to talk about it. And we had a little tear. I don't think she really kind of comprehended it like my son did. Interestingly, as they've got older... And a lot of their friends admire the work that I've done yeah. or the story and the backstory because none of their friends come from the world that you and I come from, from yeah. inner city, council estates. You know, mm. these are most of them, I would say, um, come from a completely different world. And so that's been helpful. It's been helpful to my kids. Yeah. I that, think kids are, kids are so much, we, we, they're so much cleverer than we think they are. You know, they understand so much more than we think they do. You know, um, when I talk to my, my daughter about my past, she asked the most intelligent questions and like questions that I never thought she would ask. I was so blown away by her, mm. you know, and it was such an amazing moment that I think, you know, we can't be ashamed of our past, you know, because it is who, we, and, and, you know, it is who we are. And, you know, your story is incredible, Raphael. It really is absolutely amazing. And I think um, I encourage anybody to read your book. 
um, and you have a you have a foundation which you which you do. Is that right? I do. Yeah. 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 Would you like to tell me a little bit about that? It, it's born out of the Netflix show. Actually, yeah. you know the, the the show I do on Netflix about prisons. You know, coming out of those environments where you know the resources and the conditions are just shockingly bad. Yeah. Um, and so I set up a foundation to try and improve conditions in prisons around the globe uh, and the basic human rights. You know, regardless of what people are in prison for, they're still human beings. Yeah. I know what it's like not to have a voice. I know what it's like to be isolated, segregated and punished in a way that does no good for anybody. Mm. And if you can address some of the problems that I've witnessed around the world, you can reduce the reoffending. You can reduce, yeah. the, you know, the potential next victim. So that's part of what my foundation mm. Is about what's the foundation called? The Raphael Rowe Foundation. Raphael Rowe Foundation, great. Yeah, and we can check that out. Um, Raphael, thank you so much for being on. I loved your book, and um, I've I've got it, given it to a few other people now, and um, and they're loving it too. So I encourage everyone to read it. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Raphael Rowe. I hope you enjoyed it. I've just finished listening to his book and um, I read it, then I've listened to the audiobook, and I really advise you to listen to it. We didn't really get much into the case that was against him there, but it is fascinating. I don't really know much about the legal system and what I do know, I don't like, but this book will blow your mind as to the injustice that was put against him. You know, he's had quite a journey, but I love how he never gave up hope. You know, he talks about hope in the book and it really kind of spurred him on and gave him that drive to never give up, even in his darkest of times. You can find a link to his memoir and his podcast in our episode description. And if you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, there is also links to guidance, advice, and organizations that can help you there too. I'll be back next week where my guest will be the fitness expert, entrepreneur, and inspirational speaker, Tyrone Brennan. I hope you can join me then. <laughs>